Okay, warriors, you are listening to Unqualified Therapists. Remember, stay wild and weird. Hey, warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah. We are the hosts of The Unqualified Therapist. We are not here to give you advice. We are here to tell you our stories, share your stories, and bring on the professionals from time to time. Mental health is complicated, and we know that from our personal experience. We believe in professional therapy. Both Sarah and I use that on our own healing journeys. But we also know it isn't one size fits all. The stigma surrounding mental illness can make us feel alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. And you're listening to The Unqualified Therapist Sync. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. Oh, this is a different episode, and I'm really excited for it. Yeah, it is, and (laughs) it can be upsetting, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think that it goes along with the idea that we're in spooky season, right? Yes. Oh, there's still some people in 2022 that find mental illness to be scary. Scary. What is wrong with you? I don't know. (laughs) Educate yourself. Anyways, we're going to go way back in time and talk to you about how people felt about mental illness then. And all of the treatments that went along with it. Which were way worse. Holy shit, were they way worse. But I'm going to say this. As I was researching, I was thinking like 20 years from now, 30 years from now, people are going to look back and think, what the fuck? I was thinking the same thing. I was like, they're going to they're gonna look back and say, oh, all I did was drug people up and give them exactly. a bunch of chemicals and medicine. Exactly. And, yeah. That's exactly what they're going to say. Or I was like even looking at the conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Can you imagine like in 50 years? Because it's really upsetting now. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine what it's going to be like then. So, you know, this is us looking way back into the past. Um, and it just, what it made me realize is that Mental illness, mental health is very hard to understand. It is. And as we're going to find out, there was so much misunderstanding around it way, way back. But what I do want to start with is saying that in ancient Egypt, they had it going on correctly. And then for some reason, we took a sharp left at Albuquerque and like don't even know what happened after that. Because in ancient Egypt, they used to treat mental illness with music therapy, art therapy. They would give attention and love and care to the people who were suffering from mental illness and bring them into the communities. And then out of oh, nowhere, you mean they wouldn't push like, them out of the communities. Right. Oh, what wow. a concept. What a concept. <laughs> but I do think that in ancient Egypt, they had a lot of things going on that somehow we decided we were just not going to continue. So we're going to do a countdown of sorts, but there's really no way to count down on what is the worst and what is the least worst because none of these are best or good. So we're just going to do a countdown in no particular no order. No particular order because it's really hard to say that, well, some of, th- I could see what they were trying to do in some of the ones I looked at. You didn't. Because you had I the didn't. worst ones. I, did I? Yeah. I must have. You really did. Oof. And 
So yeah. I guess you're right. I'm looking at yours and I'm like, yeah, I can see that. I can see there's like some logic behind some and of I kept these. trying to go to different websites and I even read some scholarly articles. I was like, oh God, I haven't been in college in a while. But yeah, I, I really tried to understand what they were thinking. Number 10. Moral treatment. See, that sounds like a great thing in theory. And it mostly is. So what happened is, is that they saw what was happening in asylums. They saw how dirty they were, how overrun they were, the uh, restraints, which I'm sure you're going to talk about because God, that was like the number one thing. And they kind of went the opposite way. And so it was the Quakers who started this. And so the idea was a kindness, caring approach. And so this idea that we are going to treat patients with um, compassion and we're going to try to enable them to normalize their thoughts and actions by having compassion, kindness, care around them. I'm shocked. So this was a treatment for mental health in what era? So it started in the 19th century, but I don't know when the Quakers brought it through. I'm not sure of the year. It was the idea that we can be humane and ethical with our treatments. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to kind of is there like an asterisk there? There is, there is an asterisk. <laughs> so while they did better than asylums, the idea was to treat them as children. Oh. So they really didn't have a whole lot of say over their care. It Eek. was it was kind of just like decided for them what was yeah. best, which is done in asylums too. Mm-hmm. And in hospitals today. I, yep. Mm-hmm. We can both attest to that. Mm-hmm. So I would say this is probably the least... <laughs> bad of all of them because it was really this idea to take them out of their homes because they were causing a ruckus in the community or whatever you know like whatever with whatever they were doing was upsetting people and then you take them and it's called the retreat model and you know along with this kind caring compassionate clean living so there was a religious aspect (laughs) aspect to it where they felt that if they they instilled these religious morals that then these people would be better so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You no. can't see faces. I'm sorry. Guys. It's, it's not great. It's not great. Okay. But we didn't drill holes in their heads. So, um, we're going to say that this out of all of these is probably the least intrusive or the least frightening, frightening of them. Yeah. Well, we're going to move into the complete frightening side, the scary side of these treatments. And we're going to go right, right for it. We're going straight for it. Number nine lobotomies my knowledge of lobotomies like when I first heard about them and knew what it was was from one flew over the cuckoo's nest that was how I like first kind of was like they did that to people no that's just a movie like they didn't do that to people right no they did so my first hearing of a lobotomy Mm -hmm. is in the episode that we're gonna film later film (laughs) how about record (laughs) and about Ohio University. So when I went into the asylum and I saw the room and all of that, they talked about how the lobotomies were done. And I got to see like the different rooms that those were done in. I had, I just got like goosebumps. And it blew my mind because in my brain, lobotomies were like thousands of years ago. Yeah. No. Nope. Not at all. Tell us when. So I also watched Ratchet on Netflix. I, I couldn't do it. It's very good. It's disturbing, but it's very good. I like shows and movies like that where it gives you the point of view of the antagonist so that you can not sympathize, but understand yeah. Yeah. where they're coming from and what happened. So like knowing her backstory was 
fascinating. I don't know if that was like her backstory in the writing of, because that is a character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She is Nurse Ratched who takes care of the main character. Anyway, lobotomies, they were widely used from the late 1930s to the early 1950s. Way too soon. That's way too recent. That's too close to home. So according to one 2013 research paper, roughly, ready for this, 60,000 lobotomies were performed in the United States and Europe in the two decades after the procedure was invented. How did they get away from this? There were some high profile uh, incidents that helped turn public opinion against lobotomies. So there was an example of President John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, received a lobotomy, but it left her permanently incapacitated. So she was unable to walk, talk, eat anything I mean, on her think own. Think about anymore. how many things you could nick when you're how, in there. How badly it could go wrong. Uh, yeah. yeah. This is the most terrifying part of this entire section that we're going to talk about is that lobotomies have been banned in some places, but are still performed on a limited basis in many countries. In 1950, the Soviet Union banned the use of lobotomies, but it is still technically still legal in the United States. Like, there's not a law against it or a ban. Fuck. (laughs) Fuck. I know, right? We better run. Just kidding. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Surgeons occasionally use a more refined type of psychosurgery called cingulotomy in its place. So this procedure involves targeting and altering specific areas of brain tissue. So there are still some surgeons who use cingulotomy that to treat obsessive compulsive disorder and they only use it if it hasn't responded to other treatments and doctors will sometimes use it to treat chronic pain here's where it's like okay do i agree with this absolutely not (laughs) would i want somebody doing this to me no do i see what they're trying to go for perhaps i have to tell you in all of these i see what they're trying to go for because they believe that by doing the lobotomy that they were disrupting the brain circuits yeah which is what we're trying to do in all the other treatments medication with ect everything and so uh, i see it i don't condone it no yikes it's terrifying to me some people believe including myself lobotomies were a clear demonstration that mental illness treatments should be thoroughly tested before being widely used (laughs) Uh, they did lead to mental health professionals uh, to further research the connections between signs and neurological signaling within your brain and the connection of that to mental illness. So I suppose it did lead to something good, but I feel absolutely terrible for those 60,000 people who were subjected to lobotomies during the time frame that they were being practiced. Yeah, and then had these side effects that caused them not to live a life at all. Right. It could cause severe brain damage. They could no longer walk, talk, eat on their own. And some people just lost a personality, basically. So they lost the ability to to feel feelings like love even. So even positive feelings because it was disrupting the wrong circuits in the brain. Yeah. So it's very sad. In appropriate patients, they use things such as deep brain stimulation now and electroconvulsive therapy known as ECT, which we will also talk about. Those are used successfully now, question mark, question mark, Mm -hmm. question mark, (laughs) and are used to treat severe OCD. And then ECT is used to treat severe mania or severe treatment resistant depression. No, thank you. So ECT was brought to our attention as a possibility of something that Scott could do, 
but then the side effects were so bad because you just could lose memories, parts of yourself. It just didn't seem like the jumpstart or the reboot that was worth it. You know what I mean? I think that's what everybody's trying to do is do a reboot. Right, exactly. So looking for that safe option. Yeah. I don't know that there is a 100% safe option for that, unfortunately. I would say your psilocybin therapy gave you a reboot. It did, but it wouldn't have been an option for Scott, which is really sad. And he searched for that through Mm -hmm. what was legal, which was... Ketamine. ketamine because when it's if, if a patient experiences any type of psychosis at all it could lead to furthering that psychosis or making that psychosis a more frequent part of their life and that's just You're right so then that wouldn't have been yeah. an option even if it was legal because it's not right appropriate for someone with psychosis Oh my, that's sad. It is. It's very sad. And so that's, I mean, and that's why we're having these kinds of discussions of why we're talking about these treatments too, is because we want to show that there's still so much to learn and still so much more that we need to do. Number eight. Listen, this one I researched a lot and I still don't understand what the hell they were thinking, but (laughs) here we go. It is called bloodletting, purging, vomiting. Okay. I feel like back in the day, like back, back in the day that they used to bloodlet for everything. They're right. like, let's just let out as much blood as we can exactly. until whatever's in you goes away. Exactly. Because that's what they thought they were doing. <laughs> so it has its roots in ancient Greek medicine. And then what happened is, and I'm just going to read this quote because I'm going to see if you guys can understand this. So, <laughs> so one of the doctors, one of the scientists believed that an internal biochemical relationship was behind mental disorders. So bleeding, purging, and even vomiting were thought to help correct those imbalances and help heal physical and mental illness. Like how? I don't know. Another reason for this is something that we'll talk about in the other treatments as well, is that they thought it was an evil spirit or a demon. And so by purging and bloodletting and and all of these things were getting it out of you. I'm having a hard time understanding how these things are correcting imbalances though i don't think that they knew the link between mental illness and physical health yeah so they also use that this for like things like diabetes asthma cancer cholera smallpox and a stroke bloodletting was a thing using leeches i don't if you sneeze too many times they're like get the leeches (laughs) (laughs) we laugh oh but it is not funny so another thing i read was that bloodletting apparently calmed people probably because you were like getting woozy yes you were like i can't i can't even sit up i'm like of course it calms you down so this was a treatment and i don't understand it (laughs) I don't get it. I don't get it either. And it's not because I went to one place. I really did try to understand this by going to multiple sites. I don't know how that could have helped, but they really, they really thought it did. <laughs> I have to interject with a small, a short story here. I had a boyfriend in college. You did bloodletting? Um, sort of. What? Yeah. So not, he didn't choose to though. Here's what happened. He was building something and he was using like a circular saw and he cut off two of his fingers. Jesus. Well, you should have warned me I'm before so you sorry. said that. I'm so, so sorry. So when he went into the hospital and they reattached them, they put, they used leeches so that the leeches okay, would yeah. draw the blood I did, to that I, part I, of his hand. I know hand. of that. I didn't know they still did that. Yeah. So they, I mean, it wasn't like bloodletting. It was trying to pull that to circulation. But that makes sense to put the 
fingertips back on to circulate. Okay, that I can wrap my brain around. That okay. was a gross story, Sarah. I'm so sorry. I should have given it a, a, like some oh. sort of warning. Like if you, mm. yeah, mm, sorry. I get so queasy. <laughs> oh. So, okay, I'm going to do a vomiting warning. All right. So if you don't like hearing stories about vomiting, fast forward. I can kind of see the vomiting thing. When I went to Canada and did the psilocybin, I also did campo. And what that is, is the frog poison. They put right. it on your skin and it makes you vomit. And I vomited for about 30 minutes. And the part, the point of this is to rid your body of any trapped trauma and toxins and things that you're holding on to. So, okay, we're still doing that kind of. You are. I, <laughs> you're not going to do that. I know. No. Okay. So even while she was doing it in the midst of her vomiting, she was like, Amy can't do this. I did. I, th- I was thought to myself, the fr- as soon as the heat flush like hit my face, mm-hmm. I was like, nope, Amy would never be able to do this. And I'm so glad she's not here because she would be like, call an ambulance. <laughs> you know, I would <laughs> yes, too. Would. You'd be like, call I would have overrided everyone. Yes. <laughs> I would have been like, I'm in charge now. <laughs> But the the point of it is, though, to, it's like, I guess our bodies hold on to that. Here's the hold up for me, though. For me, that's trapped trauma. I don't think in ancient times they were worried about <laughs> holding on to trauma. My guess is that they were treating mental illnesses that were perceived as disruptive to the community. That was a big part of it. Let's not disrupt the community. Right. So most likely people who may have suffered from schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And those were the big, the one. big one. Yeah. Some things haven't changed. Number seven. Nothing better. Nothing better. <laughs> Nothing next. better. It doesn't get better. Sorry. Um, this one is called trephination. And uh, basically, to summarize, it is putting holes in your head. So history estimates that this treatment began about 7,000 years ago. Holy shit, people, right? Because they studied skulls and saw these big holes. Um, They created a hole in the skull using an auger, a bore, or even a saw. Experts guess that this procedure is the oldest known treatment for mental illness, and it might have been aimed at relieving headaches. Like, yikes. Could you imagine being like, I have a headache, and they're like, get the auger, son. (laughs) I mean, just... sometimes the pressure in your head when you have a headache is so severe that you mm-hmm. think that if someone would just like poke a hole, like it would just release. <laughs> but nobody really thought that through. I guess not. I mean, I get migraines, so like I get it. But holy shit, I can't even imagine. <laughs> but they they were treating uh, headaches, mental illness or presumed demonic possession. Of course. They did it for magic or religious reasons, such as to free people from the demons that could be torturing them. So this is back to the perceived demons, but we're probably looking at some mental illness at this point. They use it as an initiation, as a way of giving a rite of passage to adulthood. What? Or to turn someone into a warrior. We will still call you warriors, but we are not going to put holes in your head, we promise. No, no. That wasn't done anytime recently, right? 7,000 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, so we're, <laughs> we're done. a little past that. We're not yeah. drilling holes in people's heads anymore. No, no. Uh, they would also use it for therapeutic reasons to treat tumors, convulsions, epilepsy, migraines, loss of consciousness, and behavioral changes. And I think the thing is, though, is you have to think, okay, that long ago, that's just the beginning of trying to figure things out. Yeah. Yep. So you don't really know much. Right. And it just seems to probably make sense. It, it, I bet. Because there is a link to today. We still do use this method for certain things. Nowadays, they may put a small hole in the skull to treat bleeding between the inside of the skull mm-hmm. and the surface of the brain. 
that usually results from a head trauma. Surgeons will only perform a craniotomy for exceptional reasons, such as to remove a brain tumor or an aneurysm to treat an aneurysm. So we're not using it for mental illness treatments anymore. We're using it for physical illness treatments, which makes more sense. Takes me back to like Grey's Anatomy, where you get to see them do the brain. Mm-hmm. I never watched Grey's Anatomy. That would be one of the reasons why. Yes. I don't know why I did since I have such Ooh. a blood phobia. I do too. I, I Except when you're telling the story. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> it's because I was prepared for it because it was coming mm-hmm. out of my brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that still. It's okay. Forgive you. Number six. Mystic rituals of exorcism and prayer. Oh, here we go. We know that still happens. It sure does. This just goes back to everything else that we've been talking about. Really, there's this like belief that there's demonic possession when people have some sort of mental illness. Again, probably more so an illness of anything with psychosis Mm -hmm. or anything where like you're actually speaking out and saying things that are seeing things or anything that is really upsetting to the community <laughs> sorry um mustas mustas but i will say one of my many many therapists that i've seen two actually at some point but anyways i used to go to christian counseling and the reason for that was because i believe so deeply that the only way to heal from this was god and I wanted to have both worlds. I was explaining this to Sarah yesterday. She was like, what the actual fuck? My depression and panic attacks and the anxiety and all of these things. I mean, this is like I was 20, 24, 25. She like prayed over me and was like, you have like a demon attached to you. We went through this whole process of like filling this demon and calling it out in Jesus's name and like... (laughs) It's so hard to tell this story. Oh, Lord. And giving it a name. And I think I don't remember the name. But like I said, to like, please remember the name, please. I don't. But I remember saying I Wait, was like, what name did you say yesterday? Kyle. Name. <laughs> it's just like, and I was like, shut the fuck up. She did not say your demon's name was Kyle or no, Todd. 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 I was like, I don't know. Jeremy, Todd, Kyle. It had an, a regular name. We gave it a name. And we prayed this thing out of me and, you know, it was like I had to think back to like, when did it get attached to me? And, you know, this was what was causing my severe depression and panic attacks and such. Well, I had to go back on my medicine. That didn't work. I was just going to say, how did that work out? (laughs) It did not work out at all. And I, I look back and I think, gosh, that's so silly. But I can understand again, since it was me and I believed it so deeply, I can understand why. I believe that so deeply and so I don't want to like laugh at anyone else who believes that as well no and here's my thought around it pray for your depression pray for the release from your depression absolutely but also take your medicine go to a therapist do do yoga and take walks outside right no, you know what I mean like yeah. do all of the things but which don't is the say, whole point of our podcast yeah do everything right you pray pray but also Uh Go to the doctor and also, you know, take your medication and also do therapy. I do believe there is power in prayer, whether you believe, you know, in the Christian God and Jesus, or you just believe that a higher power. I really do think that you can pray to help you release the trauma or whatever it is that you're holding on to. In my mind, I thought there was like a demon that was going to float out of my bed. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of Because that's kind of how the picture was painted. Right. And it just seems so strange to me now how, oh my God, that's 20 years later. You live and learn. This, an exorcism, (laughs) I mean, that 
I we mean, could do an entire episode on we exorcism. We could do an entire episode on that. I mean, there is there is extremes that this was taken to that is inappropriate and really dangerous. That is mystic rituals, exorcism, and prayer. We talked about on a previous episode, the Remnant Church with Gwen Shamblin as the leader of that church and how there was a woman who went there who was suffering from depression and she was told basically to pray over it and that she did not need medication and that if they knew she was taking medication, her husband was going to leave her. So she drove to a different city to admit herself to the emergency room so that she could be put on medication. And then he basically found out and said, like, as long as I don't know you're taking it, do not ever take it in front of me. Do not tell me you're taking it. Don't ever mention it. Hide it from me if I ever find it. Any of that, this is over. So she had to hide her her antidepressants to feel better. And when you live in a community like that, it is really frowned upon because that means that you're not praying enough or holy enough or godly enough. Godly enough. Remember that one? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and I've talked about this on a previous episode. I do think that, and I'm not blaming anyone or any community, but I do think that Scott's illness wasn't diagnosed until we left the church because the advice that we were given to the community members in our church that we asked was just to pray more, to have other people pray for us. And again, you can't have that alone. And I think there still are a lot of religions who frown upon any kind of psychiatric care. A very pop culture reference that I'll give you. Um, Amy knows how much uh, I love Frasier and makes fun of me so bad for it. I've I've never seen an episode of it. I've seen every episode like 52 times. Uh, It's yeah, one of those things like how people fall asleep to The Office, I fall asleep to Frasier. But again, (laughs) we don't fall asleep to TV anymore. No, we don't. Katie Stewart. Wink, wink. Wink, wink. If Dr. Katie Stewart is listening, I don't do that anymore. What? Anyway, Dr. Fraser Crane is a psychiatrist on the show. And so he was on Cheers before that. All of the Cheers characters came back and played some sort of cameo within the show. With the exception of Kirstie Alley, she refused and wouldn't because she's in Scientology. And Scientology explicitly forbids psychiatry and psychiatric care. Yeah. Another link right directly to the present of... Well, I guess the 90s isn't the present, but you know. <laughs> to us, it is. To us, it is. The 90s was like five years ago. To, to me. us, it is. I love when they're like, you were born in the 1900s. What the hell? Number five. Physical therapies, which is not what you would think it is like it is now, but it was the use of ice and restraints. So moral treatment was the overarching therapeutic foundation, which is what Amy talked about. And that was in the 18th century. But even at that time, physicians had not fully separated mental and physical illness from each other. So that's what resulted in all of these fucked up things that they were doing to people's bodies to try to rid them of their mental illness. So as a result, the treatments were purely physical approaches to ending mental disorders and their symptoms. So this included ice water baths, physical restraints, and isolation. I also have some pictures of some of these things that I'll put up on our Instagram after this episode airs so that you guys can see some visuals of what we're talking about too. We won't put anything too graphic on there, I promise. One of those things was called a surprise bath, and it's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) So you would stand on a platform, and it would be something that resembles like a dunk tank. You know, you see it like carnivals where you throw the baseball, hit the target, and somebody falls in. But they didn't know that there was a thing of water underneath. So it's not only shocking from the ice, but also from the timing. Correct. From you just falling through the floor 
into a giant vat of ice water. They would be no, dumped. thank you. Yes, without warning. So at some point, they would just right through the floor and into this vat of ice water. And this was used to calm people down who were being unruly. The next type of ice water baths would be a continuous bath. This was also used for sedation purposes. They would strap a patient in a tub with a cover over the top that only had a hole for your head to poke out. They would then fill the bath with extremely cold ice water or extremely hot water. This was used to, air quotes, cure insomnia, suicidal thoughts, depression, and mania. Yikes. Next would be spray downs, and these were sort of the most humiliating of all of them because they would strap you into like a shower stall and then they would use a hose with very strong pressure like pressure washer type to spray you down and this was also to sedate someone who was acting in a way that they didn't see appropriate so if you were in an asylum and you were acting out this could be one of the ways that they would use to try to calm you down this last one isn't as a like shocking thing, but I feel like this would be absolutely miserable. So they use something called a hydrotherapy pack and they would use either cold or hot water depending on the illness that was being treated. Um, the cold was used for manic depressive symptoms. And these are all outdated terms, by the way, because this is right, outdated right, treatments, right, right. just so you know. Um, so they would use those for manic depressive symptoms or any agitated or excited behavior in a patient. They would soak these garments in ice cold water, these sheets, and then they would wrap the patients in a sheet and in like a mummy type style. And then they would lay wrapped in the wet sheets for several hours. The tubs, you could also be kept in them for several hours to several days. I, I wish you could see my face. It's not that I'm not <laughs> reacting. It's just <sighs> facial reactions. Yeah, yeah. And this is tough. This is tough to hear. Like these are actual patients suffering from mental illness. So and this is what they did. I'm going to go the opposite and just say that it is interesting because we do understand now that ice baths or face and ice or what I like to do is put ice or a cold bottle on my chest during a panic attack work. The problem comes when it's how long you're doing it, as well as having a choice. We do know now that shocking the system, getting an ice bath, whatever it is you're going to do, that does do a reset. And you have control over it. If you get in and are like, fuck this, you can get right back out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there is a, a valid reason scientifically that I cannot explain to you with cold <laughs> you know, extreme cold on your body to either calm you down or to do a reset or whatever, you know, they're, they're thinking back then. But the way that they treated them like animals and like not really humans is probably the part that's like archaic and awful. And it's what's upsetting me. Yes, absolutely. And I think the cold, like the shock is good when you're hyper-focused on something that's making you feel anxious and you can kind of give yourself a little shock, like stick your face in some cold water, splash cold water on your mm -hmm. face, that it sort of just like kind of snaps you back to like, whoo, okay, I need to take a minute, take yeah. a deep breath. And it allows you to do that. This is not that, unfortunately. But again, we can see kind of what they're going for. We're trying really hard here. <laughs> We're trying really hard. So, um, but that's the connect back to the now. <laughs> Number four. I can't find anything good about this one. Oh, no. What is it? it oh, is. God. <laughs> it is called insulin coma therapy. This was introduced 
hold on to your butts for this. <laughs> this was introduced in 1927 and continued until the 1960s. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. So we're past lobotomies. We're still doing Holy this. Holy shit. So we're deliberately putting a patient into a low blood sugar coma because they believed that large fluctuations in insulin levels could alter how the brain functioned. Again, we're trying to reset. These comas can last one to four hours. But then I read in a treatment plan, a person could get up to 50 comas. What? Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, you're just like melting their organs down and their brain. What they're trying to do is put you into a seizure because they also believe that, you know, like I've got that one on my list. They also believe that Mm -hmm. a seizure would reset, would would somehow make these brain stems like, you know, go in the right place or whatever. So the idea was to use the insulin to bring on a seizure and then coma. I'm just shaking my head back and forth. No, like what? And then the electroconvulsive therapy was after that considered a safer alternative to insulin coma therapy, but it's doing very similar things. They stopped doing it because of the side effects and, you know, the things that were happening to people coming out of it. Like kidney failure? Yeah. Like, holy crap. Like I think about all my diabetic friends and family members, what I know about what that can do to your kidneys. So even though the mortality rate was only one to 10%, there still was people who died from this because the patient failed to respond to the glucose coming back in to come Mm. out of the coma. Plus they probably didn't count the people who died from like kidney failure later on in life because they didn't connect the dots. Sure. I'm sure. Holy shit. I'm sure that one, this one's scary. That's very scary. Like really, really scary. And it feels like extreme. <laughs> Not that these other ones <laughs> aren't, but yeah. Uh, to know that this was done all the way up until the 1960s. Mm-mm. It looks like in my notes, though, I had 1970s. So it must have been a different article I read. Wow. So. That's not a long time ago. No, you were born in the 1970s. I sure was. (laughs) About to be another year. Almost. Almost. This weekend. So insulin coma therapy is not a good idea. No bueno. No, no thank you. Mm -mm. No thank you. And I'd never heard of it. I didn't either. I didn't know that they did that to treat mental illness. Number three. Metrazole. It sounds like a like 20s, um, like Tums or something. But it was not. <laughs> it's not. It was believed that during the era of World War One, that seizure, like you just said, seizures and epilepsy could not exist together with mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. Yeah. Don't ask me the logic behind that. I don't know how they could think that those two things could not coexist, but they did. So they thought that if they induced seizures in a patient that was suffering from schizophrenia, that it would cure them. So they would give them a drug called metrazole. The drug would cause the patient to go into a seizure about a minute after injection, and the seizures were so severe that they oftentimes resulted in injury like torn muscles or broken bones. This would be done, are you ready for it? A few times a week as a treatment, until it was deemed ineffective and the drug was removed from the market in, drumroll please, 1982. No! Oh, God! Wow! Wow. Mm, mm. Even though it wasn't successful as a treatment, it was the precursor for ECT, which we've talked about now today, in, which is the electroconvulsive therapy, which is still used today for severe depression, catatonia, and mania. Woof. 
That's all I got for Metrazole. I don't want any more. I don't want any more either. Like, I don't want any more at all. <laughs> Number two. My last one is fever therapy. It's very similar reasoning behind all the other things we talked about. The idea that one disease can possibly cure another disease. So like, I guess that means like when they say two wrongs don't make it right, but they're thinking like <laughs> two wrongs cure you. I don't know. So <laughs> I just came two, up with two wrongs are the cure for everything. <laughs> It's not sleep. It's two wrongs. So we've got a disease and we've got fever. So they were like injecting people with like malaria. What? So that they could get the fever to cure the mental illness. They even called it malaria fever therapy. I can't believe that's a thing. Where are you going today? I'm just heading to the hospital for my malaria fever therapy. I guarantee you this was not something that they were like allowed to choose or not choose. Want to meet for coffee later? Oh my gosh. What the hell? I'm just gonna go. Get, I'm just gonna go get me a little malaria. <laughs> After that, I'm gonna be just fine. <laughs> they raised the body temperature and they kept it there, thinking that it would like you know how a fever cures you from like your cold or whatever. Like it's doing something. It's fighting your cells are fighting each other. I'm yeah. sure there's medical people out there that are like you're botching that up. Yep, <laughs> Amy. <laughs> But I'm sure I am, and that's fine. This is not my area of expertise. <laughs> but I do know that a fever is good for whatever it is you're fighting, and so it like, yeah, can kill the disease right. and fight it off. And I believe that is what they were thinking. Well, that again goes to that they didn't realize that they were only using physical treatments for mental illness because they thought that it was a physical thing only. Wild. It is wild and fucking upsetting. When you think about it, when you have a bad fever and you have like fever dreams when you sleep, that's almost hallucinations. So oh, sure you're is. just using like one hallucination inducing thing to combat the another. The only time I've ever ha saw things is when I had COVID and that high, high fever. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it was really scary. Yeah. So I the bet. fever can really mess with your, you know, brain. Um, I will say that it did not cure me from other issues that I have. So uh, no, I don't think it's it worked, which is why they stopped doing it. Yes. Oi. Number one. Asylum's use of isolation. I think we all know after COVID and quarantine how disruptive isolation can be to your mental health. So I'm not sure what they were thinking in terms of this being a cure-all but it was used widely throughout asylums, which we don't refer to that again, archaic language, because we're talking about archaic treatments. <laughs> According to the Psychiatric Times, quote, there is surmounting evidence that solitary confinement with its cocktail of sensory deprivation and overload, social disconnection and idleness harms the mental and physical health of those exposed to it. Those without pre-existing mental illness may experience a deterioration in mental health and those with mental health conditions often decompensate and cycle from suicide watch to psychiatric hospital and back to solitary confinement. Placing someone in an extreme environment like solitary confinement taxes the body and psyche and often overwhelms a person's capacity to cope. Isolation like solitary confinement is associated with a 26% increased risk of premature death largely from a stress response that produces significant cortisol levels, increased blood pressure, and inflammation, end quote. All of that's from being isolated? Yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Even this introvert likes to uh, be around people sometimes. Yes, yes. 
So chronic stress can damage the hippocampus, which is your part of your brain that's associated with your memory, your spatial orientation, your learning, and most importantly, your emotional processing. While increasing activity of the amygdala, which is what mediates fear and anxiety, it is basically tamping down the regulation part and tamping up the fear and anxiety part. Wow. They have used anything in asylums. They have ranged from chains to cages to straitjackets. But the scariest fucking thing that I've ever seen in my life was something called the Utica Crib. So this was popularized in the United States in 1846. Thank God. I'm glad I'm saying an 18 something. Yeah. 18 something is way better than 19. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was used at the New York State Lunatic Asylum in Utica. Again, I can't believe we used words like lunatic, but okay. It was similar to a baby's crib, but it was way smaller. So it had a caged lid and it was sized for adults. So the patient would be laid out in this narrow cramped crib and they would be locked in it for hours in order to sedate them. So if you were a patient in there and you were thrashing around in the crib, you would often come out very quiet and well-behaved. However, the psychological effects of it were long-term, like I spoke about just a couple minutes ago with what it can do to you. There was a New York doctor, Dr. William Hammond, who was famous for his advocacy to remove restraints from psychiatric treatment. He was quoted as describing the Utica crib as barbarous and unscientific instrument. You think? (laughs) So it's like a child's crib, like I said. So it has the slatted sides and it's six feet long and three feet wide, but it's only 18 inches deep. So you're laying down. So it's like a coffin. It's almost like being buried alive. Yes. It has a slatted lid, which shuts with a spring lock. So it's like spring loaded. Mm. You can't even turn over in it. So you're just laying down It sounds like something from uh, the true crime, the like the worst true crime episode I've ever heard in my life where she was put in that. Oh, yeah. The toy box or whatever. I forgot about that. Mm. Oh, that's terrible. Wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, his solution and suggestion was to switch to padded rooms as they would be a much more effective choice. Mm -hmm, Sure. We we all know how those have gone over. Mm -hmm. In asylums, all of the things that we just talked about occurred. And then the padded rooms, one of the biggest things they did was restraints, right? So the, what you see in the movies and those sort of things are pretty much like what it was like where they, like a straight jacket restraint. Right. And, You know, the idea is, is to take unruly people and make them comply. So that's what the isolation is doing too. And that's what all of these other coma therapy and things are doing as well. So now in today's hospitals, just from my experience with my husband, uh, it's medication and that's their goal is to just calm you down to the point that you can be like contained and managed I am not going to say one way or another how I feel about that because when he was in a truly manic state and I could not control him from harming himself or others or those sorts of things, his psychiatrist gave me like this big, huge, like, it's like, I know when we joked it, like a horse tranquilizer sort of thing, you know, like a bit like sleeping pills. And he was like, that's what you have to do. He has to like, just take it and sleep. How do you get him to take it? I did it. I couldn't do it because in that session that we had with him, Scott was like, of course I'll take it. Yeah. Sure. Because he was, he, in, was, in, he was Scott he was at Scott. that point. Yeah. But he wasn't the other person who was like, no. So I couldn't even get him to like sit long enough for a conversation, let alone to take a pill. So that didn't work out, unfortunately. Um, but I get the idea of it. 
It's just that the archaicness of the restraints and the humiliation of it and the, you know, that treatment of like, you have no more choice. And it's hard because when people are in psychosis, sometimes they can't make a choice. Right. So I get it a little bit, but not a lot. I still wish there was a way for us to prevent psychosis. Oh my God, wouldn't that be Completely, because if you don't have that, it's manageable. From my experience, again, we want to stress with all of the things we talked about today, we are unqualified therapists. We do our research on the Google (laughs) and it's our personal life's experience. So, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying from my personal experience that there is, there is a time and a place, I suppose, to sedate someone because it's the only thing that works, but you kind of have to do it in secret. You know, that one time that he ran was because they went to put restraints on him and he got scared. I mean, that's gotta be so well, fuck. Yeah. I'd I was, be scared without psychosis. I was just going to say like right now sitting here on a Wednesday afternoon, yeah. if somebody tried to put restraints on me, I'd be like the fuck you are. And especially if they were like, this is good for you. I promise right. you, mm-hmm. like I know better than you, like all of those things, like you would be like, no, you don't. Right. And so you really have to be able to see all sides of this. We have to figure out like a better way to not get to that point. Exactly. While these are all, as we said, archaic and aren't in use anymore. And awful and, and terrible. Terrible and terrifying. <sighs> horrific. We can still link them to practices we do today. Sure. As we did throughout the show. And I'm not justifying anything. No. All I'm saying is that here's some more information from my experience and the fact that, you know, when someone is in psychosis, when they are truly manic, it is very hard to do anything to help them. Yes. So while we've come a very long way, we also still have a very long way to go and we've got to figure it out. And I don't have the answers. Amy doesn't have the I answers. I don't have the answers. We, don't, we can't say, do better. We should be doing this instead. <laughs> no, we don't have the answers, but we do have this idea of stopping the stigma and stop being scared because it makes it really hard for people to find the treatment that they need. Yes. And the preventative, it's all about preventative and it's about your continuous treatment. Not, cri- I mean, crisis treatment is very important, but like, what can we do Preventative, so yes. we cannot get to that to crisis, crisis. Mo- yes. moment? We have insurance companies that will pay out the wazoo and completely cover preventative care so that they don't have to pay for you to have reactive care, like surgeries and things. So if you go to well visits and you get your yearly you know, examinations, all of that is covered. So why can't we do the same for mental health care? Why isn't it completely covered by all insurances? My insurance does not cover a therapist. I have to pay for that out of pocket. And that should never be the case for anyone ever, ever, Mm -hmm. ever, ever, because Mm -hmm. therapy is the number one thing I believe that can heal a person or lead them down the path of places to find healing. Yes, absolutely. So we do know that we need more preventative care. We do know that what we have is not working 100%, so it needs to be better. I just wish we had the answer to say, here, let's do this instead. (laughs) Right, I know. No, that's not us. That's not us, but we do talk about it. And um, if you noticed on our Instagram, we have some new merch where it is our new things that we created are all about saying, let's talk about it. Yes. Let's get that conversation going everywhere we are. Amy and I sat down and said, what is the main message that we want to put out there so that 
we can encourage people to break the stigma, be comfortable to open their mouths and speak about how they're feeling. And it was just a simple message of let's talk about mental health. So if you are looking for ways to show your advocacy around mental health, but aren't ready to speak about it just yet, can slap a sticker on your water bottle there or your you laptop or you can grab one of the beanies that we have on there long sleeve t-shirt something like that but just a way to show people that you're willing to have the conversation so that maybe it'll open up some more opportunities yeah, more for dialogue. you to talk with your friends your coworkers, whatever your family we're thinking that this is like a conversation starter Absolutely. And with all of the graphic tees that we wear, I really wanted it to be something that was like not in your face because that doesn't get you anywhere. But this is just saying, let's talk about it. Right. It's not taboo. Right. Like period. It's not. Some of you might be listening to this and going, well, no shit, it's not taboo. But guys, we got to tell you, it still it is. is a lot of places. It is. We're speaking from direct and immediate past experience that's happening as we speak, that there is taboo and there is still a lot of stigma attached. We just celebrated World Mental Health Day. And when I looked up the meaning and the purpose of it, it is to stop stigma around the world. And that's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, as we have more of those days and more things that are backed by people who are bigger than us, then more people will talk about this and hopefully we can lessen the stigma. But Warriors, we hope that you feel safe enough that you have that one person that you can talk to and hopefully you feel safe enough to be able to wear one of those shirts or have that sticker. Thing is, is that what will happen, I could probably guarantee this, someone's going to say to you like, hey, and they're going to confide in you probably because they know you're a safe person. It's like wearing an ally shirt. Right, exactly. Yes. It's just showing that you are available and safe for someone to talk to. So you can find that on our website. You can also find it with a discount if yes, you go you can. to our Patreon. So if you become a Patreon with us, you can get discounts off of our merch, just depending on what tier you're in. If you're in the $5 tier, you get 5% off, $10 tier, 10% off, and $20 tier, 20% off. And by becoming a Patreon, you also help us to keep this show going. So that is a huge thing. We rely completely, completely. on our Patreon completely <laughs> to produce this show every week for you. Um, we hope that you're getting something out of it. Uh, I'm learning so much every single week that we come on here. I learn even more and I feel even more empowered. And I really hope that somebody out there is feeling the same. So do I. Yeah. So we love you, warriors. We hope that you have a wonderful week and that you stay wild and weird. This episode was brought to you by Amy Baumgartner and Sarah Simone. The theme song and our other music is provided by Epidemic Sound. This episode was mixed, mastered, and produced by Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash unqualifiedtherapistsinc. If you have a story to share email us at unqualifiedtherapists at gmail.com or reach out to us on our website, www.unqualifiedtherapists.com. Until next time, warrior, hold on. We're gonna make it. Warrior, warrior. Say it now, say it proud, shout it out, make it where we go. Warrior, warrior. Yeah,